Okay, you guys ready to continue Revelation? Hallelujah. Uh, man, we are in week three of a four-week series on Revelation, so we're going to finish it next week by the grace of God, and um, it's going to be awesome. Have you guys ever tried to uh, fill a Dixie cup out of a fire hydrant? Anybody ever tried to do that? Has anybody, like, you know when the brownie recipe calls for three tablespoons of water and you turn on your sink and it just, it's like, how am I going to fill this? It's, it, this, this doesn't work. That's kind of how I feel about this morning. We're going to try to cram an incredible amount of information in a very short amount of time. And so here's what I need you to know. Um, in the Restoring Revelation series that Bill Vanderbush put out, which I told you guys about last week and two weeks ago, he has this analogy that I love about a Bob Ross painting. You guys love Bob Ross? Isn't he awesome? So uh, in a Bob Ross painting, you'll find maybe trees, mountains, birds, flowers, you know, all these intricate details. And so sometimes when we approach Revelation, what we want to do is we want to walk up to it like this, like it's a painting, and we want to hyper-focus on this one bird. Tell me what this bird means. I can't understand the painting unless I know what this bird means. But the truth is that a painting is best absorbed how? Stepping back a little bit and taking it in, in in its entirety, right? That's what revelation for us needs to be, that we step back, we don't hyper-focus on each individual symbol, but we look at it as a whole. Someday, uh, the Lord will show us, probably in heaven, what each and every symbol meant. I do believe there's meaning for it, but in the meantime, it's better to step back and look at it as a whole. Got it? All right, uh, we're not going to do a recap, so we're going to start in chapter 8. If you have missed the first two weeks, I encourage you to jump in on our podcast or previous Facebook Lives. Um, <clears throat> one other last thing I want to say is we did decide we're going to do a Zoom uh, review of Revelation for anybody that has questions, so Grant and I will be online for you, and um, you guys, we can just talk about it. You talk about what theories you have, things you don't agree with, questions you have, all that kind of stuff, so next week we'll give you the information about that. All right, here we go. Revelation 8, where we left off last week, we talked about the scroll and the seven seals. And then we talked about how there's a connection between the seals and the seven trumpets, right? So we're going to look at this as one continuous uh, revelation right here, these two parts. So I'm going to read from the Amplified Bible again. And we're going to pick it up in verse 7. So John, there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. And then John begins to see these seven angels who've been each given a trumpet. And they are, verse 6 says, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them, initiating the judgments. So what were the judgments? We've been operating off of the understanding that the bulk of Revelation was actually fulfilled in A.D. 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. If this is news to you, catch up on the last two weeks. Um, okay, so... The first angel sounds the trumpet, and there was a storm of hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled to the earth, and it was uh, a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. So this is that verse I shared with you guys last week about that Greek word ge. Remember that? The word G-E? And that word has like eight implications. It means the earth in the general sense, but it also means the earth in a very specific sense. And what it's talking about here is the earth meaning Jerusalem. And so we know from what I shared with you last week, the history shows that a significant portion of Jerusalem was actually burned. Remember that? There was an excavated house. It's called the burned house. You can find pictures online of it. The walls are charred. It was one of the things they've excavated from this time period. Pretty wild, right? Um, okay, so the second angel sounds, and something like a great mountain blazing with fire was hurled into the sea, and a third of the sea was turned to blood, and a third of the living creatures uh, were destroyed. Um, okay, 
So remember that Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Remember me telling you that? So apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic, right? And the symbols matter. So when we're reading Revelation and when you're doing your own study, what you need to do is look for image repetition. So in other words, when you see a symbol, you want to ask the question, is this somewhere else in the Bible? Does this have another connection that I can bring some understanding to? So the other time that we see a mountain being thrown into the sea, you guys know what this is? It's Mark chapter 11. And Jesus makes the comment, if you say to this mountain, move, and it'll be thrown into the sea. You guys remember that? I'm paraphrasing. I botched that a little bit. But you guys know what I'm talking about? And so when Jesus actually made that statement, did you know he was standing in front of the temple? He was standing in front of the temple. Do you remember that mountains in the Bible symbolize, usually symbolize governments and systems, authoritative systems? So what's the implication here? That Jesus is looking at the temple saying, if you'll say to this mountain, this system be thrown into the sea and you'll believe and you don't have doubt, that's what he says, it'll be done for you. What does that mean? That we can fit, why, why would we want to physically dislodge a mountain, right? It doesn't make any sense. Well, we can dislodge a mountain system in our heart by having faith with God. And when the second trumpet sounds, God initiates that to actually happen. My interpretation, my perspective is the mountain that was thrown into the sea was the mountain of the system of the old covenant. All right, let's go into the third sounding train, uh, train, gosh, third sounding trumpet. Feels like a train sometimes. Um, this one is the Wormwood one. So he sees a star fall from heaven. I told you guys in week one, we're going to see stars all over the place. They're going to do all kinds of different things. But this star's name is Wormwood. Anybody ever read C.S. Lewis' screw tape letters? Anybody? Just two of us? Three of us? Okay, a few of you. Great. Well, the character in that one is called Wormwood. Did you know Wormwood appears in the Bible seven different times? And every single time Wormwood is mentioned, it has the same implication, and this is what it means. People turning bitter towards God. So in this third trumpet, what we're seeing is a judgment towards the people who had turned bitter towards God. And if you've been following along in this series, you know that's what Israel was at that time, remember? That they had turned bitter to God. They were no longer God's people because they had rejected his son. They had rejected him by rejecting his son. Pretty wild. Okay, let's go into the fourth angel. And I promise you we're not going to go verse by verse in all of these. But the fourth angel sounds, and the moon and the stars and the sun were darkened. They were struck. This is, again, speaking of governments. And then uh, let's go on the fifth angel. So the fifth angel is interesting. He, it's, he sees a star, an angelic being. This is chapter 9, verse 1. And the angelic being uh, had fallen from heaven to earth and the, had a key to the bottomless pit. It was given to him. So he opened up the bottomless pit and smoke like the smoke of a great furnace flowed out of the pit. And the sun and the atmosphere were darkened by the smoke from the pit. And then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Now we're going to talk about the locusts in a second. But if we're going for image repetition, is there anywhere else in the Bible that this image of smoke coming out of a pit has happened? And the only other time is Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just interesting if you step back and look at the themes that are happening. God is echoing who he is through this, how he stands for his people and against those that come against him. Um, okay, so then these locusts, this is crazy. They have the power uh, which the earth, like the earth's scorpions have. They were told they couldn't hurt the grass. We're in verse 5 here. They were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment and cause extreme pain. For Can you see it in your Bible? For how many months? Anybody know? For five months. Is that your, does your translation say that? The Amplified says that. Anybody know that? 
All right, so the locusts were given permission for five months to torment from a scorpion when it stings a man. Okay, so let's go back to Josephus Flavius' historical record of Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD, and let's look at what happened from Rome's perspective. I may have shared this with some of you before, but did you know that Rome had a catapult, and the catapult's name was the scorpion? That's what it was called. And the scorpion had the power to hail stones up to uh, 70 to 100 pound stones. They could hurl them, uh, I think it was like 400 plus yards. And the actual documentation of what happened in the Roman siege on Jerusalem was that the fir- one of the first things they did was use their scorpion catapults to pummel Jerusalem with their stones, much like hail. And they did this for, not ironically, five months. That's the actual historical document of what happened. Pretty crazy, right? This was mind-blowing to me. And then the locusts, that we get this description of the locusts in the subsequent verses. And, um, and they are, if you want to do your own research, you can see the picture of the Roman soldier is the picture being described right here. The Roman soldier going into battle, that's what the locusts are representing. It's my opinion. Um, again, I'll, I'll say this again, as I shared last week. What, how we land with Revelation, you're free to decide for yourself, right? So we're going to stay friends even if you choose not to interpret it the way that I am. I think that's an important thing in today's day and age to understand. All right, let's go to the sixth trumpet. This one is wild. So verse 14, chapter 9, verse 14. We're flying through a bunch of chapters today. Uh, So then saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the appointed hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now here's where it gets wild. You guys ready? There were, I think, six battalions that came to Jerusalem by the end of the siege. Rome had actually sent a significant portion of the army to prove its point in Jerusalem. But at the beginning, there were four different, I don't know if you call them battalions or groupings or legions. I don't know what their technical name was. But there was four groupings of soldiers Two came from one direction, two came from another, and where they met was the river Euphrates. And all four of them met together, and they watered their horses, and they waited there for their command to go into Jerusalem to take it over. Super interesting, huh? It's like even in its symbolism, when you know the history, it kind of takes on a whole other light. This isn't the main focus of today, so I want to keep going. Let's look at chapter 10. John is given a scroll to eat, and uh, this is not uncommon for prophets in the Bible, actually. The angel says in verse 9, chapter 10, verse 9, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And if we're looking for image repetition, there's another time that this happened, and it was when Ezekiel was tasked with prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem the first time. And Ezekiel eats the document, and it becomes bitter in him. And now we see John prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, and he has the exact same experience. Pretty wild. And what I think this is saying is that there's a a connection here of the bitterness of being tasked with this particular word. There's a sweetness in being used by God, but there's a bitterness in what you're being used for, right? That you have to be the voice to prophesy the destruction to Jerusalem. Then we get to chapter 11, verse 1. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and somebody said, go and measure the temple. And this is where we talked two weeks ago just about where some of the dating, the book dating issues come in. This is that chapter, this is that verse. But I want us to focus on chapter, verse 3. So we're on chapter 11, verse 3. He says, uh, there are two witnesses, okay? He says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. If your Bible is like mine, Thank the Lord it does the math for you. That's 42 months, three and a half years. 
So the two witnesses, some people might think they're actually two different people, but we see this picture through the Old Testament for looking for image repetition. The two witnesses are defined here as the two olive trees and two lampstands which stand before the Lord of the earth. And this is actually a vision Zechariah had. And it actually has some um, elements that it speaks to of what was actually positioned inside of the Holy, Holy, Holy of Holies, which we don't have time to get into today. But there was another two witnesses as well that represent who God is, and it was the law and the prophets, right? So there's this theme of these two parts of who God is. And Moses became sort of the persona of the law. And Elijah became the persona of the prophets. And not, you know, it's very non-coincidental that when the, the transfiguration was happening, Moses and Elijah appear to talk to Jesus, the Son of God, the law and the prophets. There's this dynamic there that speak to who God is. And, and so what it's interesting to me is that it says the two witnesses prophesied for 1260 days. It's my personal opinion that these are not two people speaking. These are two uh, symbols that are reminding everyone of who God is. And yet the people chose not to repent. But did you know the entire, the entire siege on Jerusalem from the fall of 66 AD until it was totally over when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, it lasted historically 42 months. Yeah, just let that sink in for a second, right? So what is God saying? For 42 months, you're going to be in this challenge while the image of who I am is being presented to you. And it'll be prophesying to you that there's an opportunity to repent. But later on, we're going to see, or you can, on your own reading, we're not going to look at it today, but you'll see that they chose not to repent, and God knew they wouldn't, and uh, it's a pretty, pretty interesting thing. All right, so then we get to chapter 12 and 13. Okay, so today we're going to look at who is the beast, what is the mark of the beast, what can we expect in the future days of our life. So here we go, Lord. We're buckled up, oxygen masks on. So if we're looking at the painting of Revelation, the big picture, Revelation happens, we're going to get nerdy for a second, on a chiastic system. Has anybody ever heard of a chiasm in the Bible before? Awesome. Anybody else? Okay, so a chiasm, you can picture it like two triangles pointing together, the big parts over here, and they meet in the middle. And so this is a common way of interpreting, of looking at the Bible. And the Hebrew mind does not work like the American mind. So I don't know if your marriage happens like this, but, you know, I'll be talking to Grant, and we'll have a conversation, and whether it's good or not great, and I'll be like, and this, and this, and this, and in to me, they're all one thing. Any other ladies or men understand this, right? I'm like, well, that's connected to that, and it's so clear as day. It's connected to that, and Grant will have to say, okay, I'm so lost. <laughs> Can we start at one and talk about that and conclude it before we move to the other thing? And I'm like, okay, but my brain doesn't work that way, but, you know, okay. And I think that's a little bit of what it's like with the Middle Eastern mind and with the Western mind, that we as Americans, we like things to go A, B, C, D, and then they never repeat because then we don't know what to do with them. But that's not how Hebrew works. So in the chiasm, it's basically like two mirroring things. You'll see the themes presented to the middle point, and then you'll see the themes presented similarly after the fact. Now, this is going to be important in a second. The middle point becomes the emphasized message, okay? So if we look at Revelation, the middle point of the chiasm is chapters 12 and 13. And I just think it's fascinating that chapter 12 is the story of Jesus embodying flesh to die for our sins. So I told you guys this in week one. What is the most important point of Revelation? It's the supremacy of Christ. The most important thing is not for us to come into fear, not for us to be worried about what's going to happen in the future, but for us to understand who Jesus is. Amen? And so we get this picture of heaven's perspective of Jesus coming to earth in chapter two, 12, excuse me, 
And then we get to the end of chapter 12, and I believe John is saying something so significant to the church. And let me just read this, verse 16 and 17, chapter 12. You can read with me. It says, but the earth helped the woman. The woman was faithful Israel. The dragon is the devil, okay? So the woman, the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the river which the dragon had hurled out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went off to wage war on the rest of her children. What is John saying here? Remember, who is he writing to? He's writing to the church that is about to go through unbelievable tribulation, and they already were in horrible persecution. This was a very, very bad time to be a believer. And so what is John saying? He's saying, listen, do you want to understand why this is happening to you? It's because the dragon hates you because Jesus defeated him. Because Jesus and the enemy had a squabble, it was not... It was not impressive. I mean, Jesus is so much bigger than the devil, right? Sometimes we have to continue to renew our mind from this idea that there was this huge war that God almost lost, you know? God was never threatened, really, by the enemy, right? And so what John is saying to the church here, and it's the same message he's saying to you and I, is that no matter what struggle is coming against you, step back and look and make sure you understand it's coming against you because of the authority of Christ in your life. And that should give us hope, When we sing that song this morning, oh, the cross, what you've done, it was more than enough. We're not still struggling against the dragon. We are standing empowered in him. And so John is saying, listen, I know your life is about to go through horrible things, and it already is bad, but never forget who it is that's coming against you. It's not God saying to you, you're wrong, something's wrong with you, I'm not, you know, you don't have my covering. It is absolutely the enemy saying, well, if I can't defeat him, I'll try to defeat them. So we should be encouraged by that. If nothing else, Revelation should actually open our eyes to fall more in love with Jesus. It should actually help us to see, wow, God, you knew exactly what was going to happen, and you were empowering us to overcome. I love that. I think that's so important for us. And then the very next verse, the very next thought, talks about the dragon coming from the sea. So let's talk for a second about pop culture revelation theory, okay? I'm not going to make you raise your hands because I would be embarrassed too, but uh, if anybody was familiar with the Left Behind series, right? Really popular in the 90s, really not so biblical. So um, it developed this idea in us that, that goes like this, right? That there's going to be this suave antichrist person, it's probably going to be a man in a three-piece suit, probably a Democrat, unless you're a Republican. And then if you're a Republican, sorry, unless you're a Democrat, and then you're going to be like, it's probably a Republican. Do you guys know what I'm saying? You always think it's someone different than you. It's not a political statement. It's a statement of our heart, right? And so we think it's going to be this person who we could never identify, but they're really slick. They're suave, you know, and, and, uh, and then they're going to somehow raise up this modern world government that's going to recreate the temple in Jerusalem. We get kind of lost on that because we don't fully understand how that's going to work. But then we go back to Matthew 23 and 24, like we talked about last week. But this time we apply it to that there's going to be this rapture moment that removes all of the Christians so that we don't have to struggle because, you know, why would we struggle? We're God's people, right? And then God's just going to smite everybody on earth for like seven years. And then they're going to go to hell and he's going to smite them for eternity. I don't know about you. And I really hope that's not the thinking that you have. But it's what I used to think because I had never looked for myself and I had listened to all these different theories that sounded plausible. They had a little bit of Bible in them that made you go, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. 
So I don't want to burst all of your bubbles today, but I do want to say, did you know there is no Antichrist in Revelation? It's not in there. The Antichrist, the idea of the Antichrist comes from 1 and 2 John. And it's John writing specifically to people who were uh, uh, proponents of the Gnostic gospel. The Gnostic gospel was all about light and dark. and, And it turned into this thing where it was about Jesus not having embodied the flesh. They actually believed that Jesus had come to the earth, but as God, and so he wasn't in the flesh. Now, this is thousands of years ago, but this is why John was writing about the Antichrist. What was he saying? If you believe Jesus wasn't in the flesh, you are operating under a spirit of Antichrist. Why? Because if Jesus did not embody the flesh, he cannot pay for our sins. If he didn't shed blood to pay for our sins, there is no new covenant, therefore all of this is wrong. And John was going right to the heart of that. And he was saying, you guys are really, really missing it, and this is really important. If you're siding with this thinking, you're siding with the antichrist thought process. So the antichrist thought process has been on the earth since Jesus was on the earth. So when we're looking for one person to embody the Antichrist, we're going to be grossly under, uh, well, I said that wrong. We'll be wrong. Because if we're looking for one person to embody the, the Antichrist, we're missing what the Antichrist is. Every person that you interact with that is anti-Jesus is operating at some level under that spirit. Does that make sense? Are there government leaders under that spirit? Yes, obviously. But are there regular moms and dads and grocery store workers and gas station attendants? Yeah. Does that make sense? So I think sometimes we've like, (laughs) trying to decide if I can be this honest with y'all. Okay, I'm going to do it. Love me anyway. It's okay. I was saying this to Grant the other day. It's like, I think the devil knows revelation more than the body of Christ does. And so he knows how to pull on our strings, right? And so he does things like, unironically, Bill Gates patents his chip for your forehead, and he makes the patent number 666, because he knows revelation, and he knows if I can twist this a little bit, the whole body of Christ will quit sharing the gospel, they'll start bunkering down and start being against all the people, and then he wins again. So maybe... What you and I need to do is redeem our picture of what is actually happening. I'm going to go out on another limb because I came out on that one. It didn't break. So I'm going to go a little farther. (laughs) And I'm just going to tell you my opinion. And I'm going to leave it at this. And you are absolutely free to have a different opinion than me. And if I'm wrong, I will repent to all of you. Okay? So let's just say that. I don't think the idea of the rapture is entirely accurate. (laughs) Don't stone me. Unless they're paper, I can handle that. The idea of the rapture is that we're going to be saved while God punishes people on the earth. But when you look at Revelation, and we look at what we've covered so far, what did God do? He saved his people while there was punishment on the old covenant system on the earth, right? And then he also said he's coming back. And so we know he hasn't come back yet, or else we're all really off course, (laughs) So we know he hasn't come back yet, so I believe he's coming again. So don't don't be like, what is happening here? I believe he's coming again, but it's my opinion from looking at all this stuff that when he comes again, that will be the end. Now, we don't have to, we can disagree, and I will love you, and there's no way any of us can truly prove it until he comes, so we're not going to lose any sleep over it, right? 
But it's interesting if we start to think about that, we stop fixating on all the bad that's being growing in the world and we start seeing ourselves as those who are empowered to sow goodness into the world. Right? So if we are looking, your perspective matters so much. If we're looking that this is the end, we're all, it's, it's going to be really bad. Who wants to be bold in that time if it feels hopeless that you can't change anything? But if we look and we say, Jesus, you're coming back, and you're coming back for a pure and spotless bride, and last time I checked, we are very dirty as a bride, so I'm going to commit my life to partnering with you in the things that I can do in advancing the kingdom and being kind to my neighbor and demonstrating your love and being bold for the gospel in all these things that I can control, right, and trust you with the stuff I can't control, and then we're actually going to see goodness advance in the earth because I'm just telling you, this is not our worst days, and we're not heading into our worst days. If we're heading into difficult days, which we might be, we're heading into them riding on the back of Jesus' pony. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? If we're heading into difficult days, it will actually be the church's finest hour because who wants to see people raised from the dead? Who wants to see people who have nothing immediately have food multiplied in front of their eyes? Who wants to see those who are dying in the streets of COVID if this turns out to be that, right? And the Christian walks by and their shadow starts healing them and they wake up and they're totally fine. That's the days we have to look forward to. If we start believing this suave political antichrist is, is doing, and I'm not saying that the enemy is not working. The enemy is working, right? But what is the message here? Look to what God is doing. Look to what God has done. And what can we do about that? Amen? So shall we continue to look at what the beast is? Praise the Lord. <laughs> so let's go back to chapter 13. So the sea... The metaphoric uh, meaning of a sea in the Bible is the Gentiles. Pretty much every time it's used in apocalyptic literature, it actually speaks to the Gentiles. So we see there's two beasts here. Most of us, if you believe the pop culture thing I shared earlier, we don't know there's two beasts, and then we don't know what to do, and we find out there's two. It feels even worse, right? Uh, <laughs> so there was two, and it comes out of the sea, which is super symbolic. And what we're going to see here, what I want to show you from my perspective, is that the sea is Rome. Okay, now remember Daniel 7. Remember I talked about this in week one? Daniel has this vision, and he sees four beasts. He sees a lion, a bear, a leopard, and something he can't quite describe. Remember this? Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. This pagan person has a dream from God where he sees this statue-like thing with four different parts to it, and then a stone that comes and crashes the statue. The statue. Remember this? And Daniel begins to interpret the dream, and he has a partial interpretation. He knows that there's something of God. And then Jesus begins to call himself the capstone. He begins to talk about himself as the stone who's going to crush those four kingdoms and who did crush those four kingdoms. Now, this is important here in a minute. So we know from history and what John is describing, and it would take me way too long, so catch the Zoom call if you want to dive into all this stuff. But John is describing that Daniel prophesied the lion, and the lion was Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel knew that, actually, in Daniel 7 through 12. He actually defines it as Nebuchadnezzar, right? And then the bear, we know, was King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the leopard was Alexander the Great of the Greece Empire. And this turns into four heads. The leopard has four heads. And the, Alexander the Great, when he died, his kingdom was divided into four kingdoms. And then we see this other beast that has ten horns. Did you know that Rome had ten provinces? Rome, the city itself, is referred to as the city of seven mountains. 
That's the historical perspective of it. So later when we see the woman sitting on top of seven mountains, that's a picture of Rome. In fact, on their money, on one of their coins, there's a woman sitting on top of seven mountains. So this symbolism is really interesting. And so, so uh, John is talking about from the sea, the dragon empowers this beast. And it says this, I love this in verse 2. This is a word for you and I today. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. What John is saying, I'm going to echo what I said a moment ago. Do you want to know why you're under persecution? Because the enemy hates you. Do you want to know why Rome is coming after you? Because the dragon is empowering him. And so then we get to the beast of the earth. And so we see this connection here. And John goes out to actually say who the beast of the earth is. Okay, whew, you guys ready for this? The entire book of Revelation is written in Greek. You guys know this? The whole book. It's written in Greek. Except for three words. There are, literally, if you read the original manuscript, which I can't because I don't know this, but I'm trusting people who can. Everything is in Greek until you get to verse 18, okay? And this is what he says, that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who, uh, this is 17, who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. We'll come back to this in a second. Verse 18, this is chapter 13, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let the person who has enough insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the imperfect number of a man, and his number is, all of that's in Greek, then it switches to Hebrew and writes out 666. Then it switches back into Greek. The rest of the book is Greek. Now, why would it do that? So the Hebrew language is like Roman numerals. There's a number assigned to a letter, okay? It's like a cipher. So you could spell, this is why if you ever follow different prophets today and they like to say, this is the year of God's breath or this is the year of, because they're taking the number and they're looking at what it means through the words. It's like a code. It's, I think it's called Jumatra if you want to look this up for yourself. I looked it up for myself because I could not believe this. You guys ready for this? 666 in Hebrew spells out Caesar Nero. Wait, what? So it's not Bill Gates? I love you, Bill Gates. We're praying for you. We believe there's a call of God on your life. So I don't want you guys to like hate Bill Gates, and I don't hate Bill Gates. I'm just, if you read any of these theories, you know what I'm saying. Isn't this crazy? 666, I actually think it spells out Nero Caesar, I think is the actual way it spells it out. You can look it up for yourself. So what is John saying? Do you want to know who the beast of our day is, the fourth beast that Daniel saw? It's Nero. Why didn't he just come right out and say it? Well, we talked about this last week. If they were caught with this literature in their hands, they, they, Christians would have immediately been to the Colosseum to be eaten by lions because that's what happened. And if they were caught by the Jews with this, they would have been horrendously persecuted as well. So it has to be in code. This is wild to me. So let's talk about the mark of the beast for a second. Okay, so verse 17 talks about, and that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number on his name. So what is he saying? Whose name do, are you marked by? Nero. That's what he's saying, right? To, in Rome at that time, okay, you could not buy or sell or do business unless you were a Roman citizen. If you were a Roman citizen, you had a special document thing. And if you were a captive and you were brought into Rome, you were branded with a mark of Rome. So if we're pulling this all together, the mark of the beast is the mark of your citizenship to Rome. Why is this bad? 
it's not bad to be a citizen of Rome, but what happened was they believed in worship to their emperor. They believed in emperor deity, right? Nero was severely demonized, and he believed that he should be worshiped as a god. In fact, some of the, that one of the emperors before him, Caligula, he was so messed up, he created a statue of himself, and he demanded the Jews put it in the Holy of Holies so that while they were worshiping God, they could also worship Caligula. Not ironically, he was murdered the day before he was going to make this happen, Thank you, Jesus. Seems weird to do that, but it's kind of weird when you look at this stuff, right? Uh, and Grant loves to tell the story of the temple Dagon back in the Old Testament where the Ark of the Covenant ended up in the Dagon statue. You guys know the story? They walked in the next morning and Dagon's on his face in front of the Ark and the people are like, wait, what? And then they put him back up and then the next day I think his hand had fallen off or something, a body part falls off and God's like, you guys, nobody's coming to touch my worship. Not even Caligula, Amen. right? And so this is interesting. So the buying and the selling, in our world, if you look at the history of, of evangelical Christians the last hundred years, there was a computer in Denmark, I think it was in the 50s, no, it wouldn't have been the 50s, somewhere in the 60s, 70s. One of you guys probably knows this, not me. Uh, it was called the beast. I mean, like, who knows, you know, physics and stuff. It was called the beast, right? The computer was called the beast, and the Christians of the day were like, oh, no, here it comes. It's happening. It's happening. When barcodes came out, people very much thought that barcodes were the mark of the beast. Turns out that wasn't true. Uh, you know, in 1988, it was, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And, uh, he, you know, like I told you guys in week one, if you want to make a quick buck, make an apocalyptic theory, throw it out four years ahead. You'll be judged by God, but you'll make a lot of money. So, you know, uh, I'm totally kidding. Don't do that. Um, but he had this 88 reasons, and TBN believed this so much, they actually suspended programming on the day, and there was a little, apparently there was a little ticker tape at the bottom that said, if you're reading this, you've been left behind. <laughs> God is gracious. They have a great, you know, they went on to have a great ministry. They still have a lot of programming. But we all want to believe this is the end, and I think, and I just think it's because if this is the end, it absolves us of responsibility. If this is the end, then I can just float in my lazy river, you know, give me a Dr. Pepper and a little mini fan on a hot day, and Jesus, you'll take care of all the rest because I don't have to do anything. If this isn't the end, then you and I have to get up and actually do something about what we believe. Amen? And I think that's why we like these theories oh so much. So the mount, so let me get into, uh, so let me just clarify again. So the, the mark of the beast is actually talking about something in their culture that happened. Remember, I think I shared this last week, there's seven marks of God's protection in Revelation and seven marks of the beast, of the two different beasts. And we understand that God's mark of protection is not, it's not a, a physical mark. God's not implanting our brains. We, we, we believe that. But then we look at the mark of the beast and we get really nervous. So remember, this is symbolism here. And let me just put it this way. Nobody goes into idolatry accidentally. Total side note, wasn't planning on saying this, but since we're moving into the holiday period, you know, a lot of people have a hard time with, like, Christmas trees. Probably not any of you guys. We like Christmas trees a lot. But some people feel like, well, Christmas trees were a sign of worship. But you, you, you have to actually choose to worship something to make it that, right? I'm not saying that we go pull out our Ouija boards. Like, that's wrong, okay? But what I'm saying is when we get into that gray area and we start to go, well, that's idolatry, we have to understand that idolatry happens in here, 
and no one else can really judge that. So the, let's go back to the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is something that you're going to know that you're doing. Nobody gives their life over to Satan because it happened in their sleep. Whoops. You know, like Ursula somehow got their soul without their participation. No other Disney fans, it's fine. So what we have to think about is we gotta, we got to use our brains. we got to use this beautiful brain that God gave us and look at this and say, well, I'm not getting that mark. <laughs> I have chosen that in my heart, right? So I'm not saying I actually don't believe it's something that is to come. I think it's something from the past. But even if it turns out to be something that also is to come, you can know that you can say no to any of those things. Nobody's going to wake up and be marked unless you want to be. Okay, that was, uh, i got to rein it back in. All right, here we go. Chapter 14, the lamb and the 144,000 on Mount Zion. I just think this is beautiful. Literally the next thing out of John's mouth about this is the beast, this is who the beast is. But then I looked and this is what I saw. The lamb stood firmly established on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name inscribed on their foreheads signifying God's own Possession. So remember, 144,000 is a symbolic number talking about the faithful ones. If you want to be in that number, you are, right? God's not excluding anybody, okay? My 16-year-old self is really happy about that because I was worried, as I shared with you guys last week, about how I was going to be saved when Kirk Cameron, you know, was the only one left on the earth. So um, it's the Left Behind series if you're not familiar. Uh, okay, so what, the lamb is Jesus, the 144,000 is the complete faithful ones, and the Mount Zion in this represents the, faith, the fulfilled reconciliation. Mount Zion represents the new covenant. Hebrews 12, 18 shows this. The mountain, again, it's a system, right? It's, it's a governmental authoritative system, and so where are we? Here's what the enemy is doing with the beast, but where are we? We are standing united with Jesus, no matter what's to come in America, and I personally believe we're about to see America's best days. I'm, I'm choosing to be an optimist, right? Because I believe that God is not done with us. I know some of you guys disagree. That's fine. Whenever it does turn out good, we can hug and, and you'll be like, oh, God is good. Sorry, I'm way too snarky. I'm raining it in. But I believe we're about to see God's best days. And it's because when we as believers understand our authority, we understand our identity, it begins to ricochet. God is so good. We were talking to um, somebody who's going to be a speaker in our training school coming up. And he was praying over our church at the end. And he made this comment in his prayer. And I've just, I've not been able to stop thinking about it. And he said, God, would you make Bethel OKC to be such an accurate reflection of you that it's really hard for the people of Oklahoma to go to hell? And it just has run on repeat for like four days in my mind. Yes, God. We want to be the display of your goodness so much that people are like, well, I want to know him. I'm doing this, but that's wrong. I want to know him. And I'm telling you, I think those days are ahead of us. All right, we're going to wrap this up in just a second. So let's turn to chapter 16. We're going to look at the six bowls of wrath. So here we're going to begin to, to hit that chiasm, okay? So we had hail, we had um, fire, we had things about water, we had all this stuff leading up to the, the supremacy of Christ, and then we're going to see those themes echoed again, right? And so there's two things I want us to note about this, and then we're going to land this plane. And it's this. Um, did you know, in chapter 16, verse 1, this is what it says. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of wrath and the indignation of God. This word wrath right there is the Greek word thumos. Everybody say thumos. 
Okay, kids, you can write down thumos if you're good Nancy, okay? Try to spell it. I'll check you later. Uh, so thumos in Greek actually means passion. What? So why does it say wrath? The actual Greek word is passion. It means a passionate, flaming feeling. And what I believe God is saying through this portion of Revelation is that it is his passionate love for his new covenant that causes everything that stands against it to be destroyed. Remember, Revelation is about the destruction of Jerusalem, specifically the destruction of the temple system. We cannot have a new covenant while we're all tempted to work ourselves into forgiveness by slitting a lamb's throat, right? That's how, it, you have to understand, at the time, you could go and they could think that they could sacrifice an animal and get forgiveness of sin, but that was gone, that was over. So the, new co the, the old covenant system had to be destroyed, never to be erected again if the new covenant was going to have a fighting chance. Amen? And so what we're going to see here is that the, the, the theme of the seven trumpets and the theme of the seven bowls of wrath is that, do you guys remember the Israelites coming out of Egypt and there was hail, there was locusts, there was water turning into blood, right? And we're seeing this image repetition here, this parallel, that in the same way God brought his people out of Egypt, God is bringing his people out of Israel because Israel in so many ways had become the new Egypt. Israel was oppressing their people. Israel was involved in human trafficking and slave trade at this point. Jerusalem had been known to trade a bunch of stuff, but they were, they were actually selling humans. This was not in line with who God is, right? And so there's this image parallel here that I think is so interesting that the, the book of Revelation, remember in chapter one, it says there's a blessing for everybody who reads it. The book of Revelation is saying, listen, if you will read this and trust me, you will get to be let out. But if you choose not to trust me, you're going to end up staying behind in Egypt. Does this make sense? So I just want to make one note of one of the, the um, end of chapter 16. Grant, can you turn the air down a little bit? I think we're all turning into ice. Um, chapter 16, verse 21 it says, and giant hailstones as heavy as a talent fell from the sky on the people, and the people reviled and spoke abusively of God uh, because of the plague of the hail. So remember I was talking about the hail? We talked about that in Trumpet 1. We talked about that with the scorpions. Here we see the chiastic part of that hail. And the hailstones, according to this, were 100 pounds. That's what a talent is, 100 pounds. Remember what the scorpion was throwing? 70 to 100 pound stones. Pretty interesting. So the last chapter we're looking at today is, is 17, and I'm, I'm not going to read anything specific from it. But the, it begins to go into 17 and 18. It talks about the doom of Babylon. And so there's a big question, well, what is Babylon? What is Babylon? Because that kind of changes the perspective, right? And so some people think Babylon is Rome. Some people think Babylon is, is Israel. Some people think Babylon represents sin as a whole. Um, but I think it's interesting, in, in one of Peter's books uh, to the, in the New Testament, he talks about greetings to the people in Babylon, except that he was writing to Jerusalem. And it's kind of it's interesting, right? It's almost like a, like a code. And I, I think Babylon is talking about Jerusalem because how Jerusalem had grown as a city had become like Babylon. And I think it was a way for them to symbolize and know this is a common thing to call Jerusalem Babylon. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but for me, that's, that's the way that I, I look at it. Um, you know, Josephus Flavius, the historian, he comments that Israel, specifically Jerusalem, had grown so dark that he was surprised the earth didn't open up and swallow it whole. 
It was that dark of a place. And I think sometimes for, for you and me, it's like we're so far removed from that that we look back at Israel and we think, well, wasn't it this religious epicenter, like a moral place that was really good? And it, it actually wasn't. So if you read the historical documentation of what Jerusalem was like, it was a very ungodly place. They were actually doing some sorcery. They were doing a bunch of interesting, very ungodly stuff, including human trafficking. So I, for me, I believe that that's, um, that's what the destruction was really about. Okay, so I want to make a couple of closing comments, but next week we're going to pick it up in chapter 19 and start looking at the good stuff that is to come. Um, so get excited about that. But I, I want to say, going back to the beast and the mark of the beast and all of that, and even Jesus' prophecy about wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, it's like these are cycles that are going to be continued to re- be repeated as long as there's darkness on the earth. Right? So it's still possible for someone to partner with the dragon. It's still possible for a, a governmental system to become as dark as Rome had or Cyrus had or Alexander the Great had become. I mean, it is possible because the enemy is still on the earth right now. And so uh, I just want to say that from a standpoint of I'm not saying that, that there's no obstacle to come, right? But the message of Revelation is don't focus on the obstacle. Focus on what Jesus does to everything that comes against his kingdom. And so, yes, the cycle can be repeated, but just like the disciples did, you know, where they're asking Jesus, so, so what, what do we do about it? When is the end going to come? They ask him that in Matthew 23, 24, and then they ask him again in Acts chapter 1 after he's resurrected, and they're like, when is the end going to come? And Jesus kind of has that statement. He's a little snippy with them, you know. He's like, uh, it's not for you to know what the Father wants to do. What does he tell him? Go be my witnesses. What does he tell him in Matthew 24? Listen, don't be consumed about when the end is going to come. Go preach the gospel to all the nations. So, so there's this, this understanding in Revelation, if, if we're choosing to pay attention to the message for us today, that when we want to focus on what, what God, like where we want God to come and end it all, to spare us of suffering, but what God wants us to do is take ownership of the stuff that we can control. Right? The only kind of control that's legal in the kingdom of God is what? It's self-control, right? So we actually have a part to play in the end coming, but the part we play is in how we share the message of Jesus. So Peter makes this statement. He says, hasten the day of the Lord, right? In fact, he also makes the comment, we're in the last days. And so if something can be hastened, if it can be sped up, it can be slowed down, right? So what if all of this destruction and and the cycles of famines and wars and all this stuff that's been continuing, what if it's because there hasn't been a generation, an entire generation who's chosen to go after the thing that God put in our court? What if? And I want us to end on this thought um, because I think it's important for us to, to recognize that what God is looking for is a generation of people who are surrendered to him. And surrender doesn't always mean the same from one person to the next, right? But we have this opportunity in today's world with the internet, with airplanes, with connected, with all this technology that we have to actually disciple nations, to impact nations, to impact the world like never before. And I'm just kind of plagued with this thought that could we actually have a fair shot of being the last generation? Could we? But it's not, God is not willing for anybody to perish. He's not eager to end this thing while there's still millions of people who don't know him. That's not his heart. So if we partner with God and we get united with him in a way that changes who we are and we begin to take his command seriously and God begins to display his goodness on the earth through people like you, 
we actually get to see something history has never seen before because there hasn't been a generation to do that yet. I think the closest one was the first one. When we see, you know, I was meditating on this two weeks ago, when we see the, the apostles in the, the first church, they had so much fervor, right? They really believed it was imminent. They really believed Jesus was coming back in their lifetime. And they ran and they ran and they ran and they didn't quit and they didn't let anything stand in their way. They didn't let their offenses, they didn't let their sin, they didn't let their problems, they didn't let their lack stand in their way, amen? And I just think we have an opportunity to do that. So here's how we're going to end today. Um, we've got some communion stations for you guys. There's one over here, there's a bucket over here, and there's one at the sound booth. And we're just going to take a second. We're going to play that song, Oh, the Cross, again. And I want to invite you to take communion with your family or by yourself and, and do it from this lens, that when we, we're coming into realignment with God, even if you did this yesterday, <laughs> we're coming back into alignment with you, Jesus that you get to be my God. And sometimes I think the enemy makes us afraid of what surrender is going to look like because we're worried we're not going to like what he tells us to do. But the thing is that when God wants to bring change in your life, the best place is to change with him. <laughs> it doesn't go well if you try not to, you know. I love how Rodney Hogue says, there's only moving forward or moving backwards. There's no parking in the kingdom of God. So this idea that we can just hang out here for a little while and not be, you know, we'll just be neutral, it doesn't exist. You're either moving forward or you're moving back. And my, my challenge to you guys this morning is let's take communion, let's do it as a family, let's come in line with who God is for what he's telling you to do right now, even if it feels so simple and so unimpressive, what he's looking for is your yes, amen? amen. So we're going to put this song on, we're going to turn the lights on a little bit. You can just grab the little, uh, their little cups, individual cups from these three places. And uh, if you need to leave, you're free to go. Miss Krista will be at the kids' area to redeem it. If you need prayer, we would love to pray for you. Otherwise, we'll do a, a blessing at the end, uh, but we can go ahead and take communion. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we are so impressed with your ability to shepherd your people. And so today, God, we invite you to come and be Lord of our lives again. We invite you to help us align our hearts with you. And as we take this bread, the symbol of your body being broken for us to come into union with you, and as we take this cup, the symbol of your blood being poured out to, to bring uh, the new covenant for ourselves, to bring forgiveness for our sins, to bring union with you. As we take these things this morning, Lord, we ask that you give us understanding, that we ask that we would be connected to you. In Jesus' name, amen.